How did people live in the first century during the time of Jesus? For some fascinating insights about first century culture from a world-renowned expert, insights that will help you to better understand the Bible, stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy, and welcome to the great state of Georgia. I'm here in the picturesque town of LaGrange, Georgia, uh, located about 60 miles southwest of Atlanta near the Alabama border. And I'm here to introduce you to a remarkable place called Explorations in Antiquity. It is a place designed to show you how people lived during the first century at the time of Jesus. This place was established by Jim Fleming, who is considered to be the foremost teacher of biblical archaeology in all the world. It's a fascinating place, and I'd like to invite you to go inside with me to meet Jim and to take a tour of the facility. Folks, here we are at, with uh, Jim Fleming in the threshing floor yes, of sir. your garden. And uh, Jim, welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. It's great to be with now, you again. Some David. of our viewers will recognize you immediately because they'll realize that you've been with us before in Dallas. But now, this that time we were talking about archaeology. This time we're going to be talking about culture of the first century. And uh, it's good to be on your turf. Right, and I'm glad that you come back 2,000 years earlier. Also. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Jim, this is, uh, I think, the, the third time that I have visited one of your sites. The first time was on uh, Bethlehem Road, was that right, yes, in yes. Jerusalem? And then you had a lot of trouble there uh, from Palestinians who were coming in and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, causing damage. So you moved to Ein Karim, which is a suburb of Jerusalem, and now here to LaGrange, Georgia. Now, tell us a little bit about that process. Well, um, our ministry in Jerusalem was important to have Christian tourism. And so we charged Christian tour groups. But whenever we had a Jewish or a Muslim group within the country, a school, synagogue, even a mosque, went to visit the museum, we always had it free because it was an educational moment for Christian witness to have non-Christians want to come. And uh, once tourism began to collapse, do you remember the second uprising from 2000 yes. to 2005 almost completely disappeared. We were unable to pay our landlord. So we had to close our gates in 2005 at the Ain Karim property. So we came to the U.S. one and I wonder if we could build a museum here. And uh, we asked around and we found a foundation in this town, LaGrange, Georgia, Callaway Foundation, that said if we would put the museum here, they would give us matching grants Dollar for dollar, any money wonderful. we raise. Wonderful. Now, is that an offer you can't that refuse? That is a wonderful. No, we felt it was a gift from the Lord. Well, I tell you what, I've, I've visited all three of your sites, and this is the most elaborate, the most fantastic. It's really worthwhile to bring a Christian group here to see what well, you I'm have. I'm glad you can make that well, evaluation, David. Uh, Thanks. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Well, it's kind of weird. I come from an airline family, so I spent most of my life overseas in Asia and Africa. My dad helped airline, uh, countries start their own airlines. Okay. And I could fly free. So when it was time to do graduate studies, I thought, well, I'd use these free flying privileges to study overseas. 
and I was interested in biblical studies. So I thought, why don't I study in Israel? So I worked on the master's level in Jerusalem, Israel, and later was privileged to be invited back to teach at the school that I had studied in in Jerusalem. And then what happened? Well, then I got more interested in tour, pretty much see churches. Yes. Or ruins, but most people have a hard time picturing how the site really looked before it was a ruin. Mm -hmm. That if we could have a place where you have reconstructions as things look, a functioning threshing floor with threshing equipment, for example, um, it would really help the Bible come alive for daily life. So we made uh, all of our museums, tried to be in a real setting. Mm -hmm. Here we had to recreate terraced agriculture and stuff. But the idea is to help people climb out of their 20th century skin, don sandals, <laughs> and go back to biblical times. Now, uh, when you went to Israel, you, give the, you gave the impression that you went over there to study and that was it. But you actually, that became your home. You lived there over 30 years, didn't yes, you? Yes, yes. Almost well, 40 years. That's right, 36 years. It was my home. In fact, I thought I would probably retire there until we had to close down the museum. And then an accident happened to you that made you world famous among archaeologists. He always bring up something that took no <laughs> foresight, no brilliance. It's called stumbling into an archaeological discovery. I fell in a hole. Well, tell us about that. Uh, I was photographing around the old city of Jerusalem, and I was taking a picture of the eastern gate to the city. It had been raining for several days, Yep, right? and of course the ground was soft, and there was a mass burial tomb under where I was standing. And just when I went click, taking a picture of the top of the gate, I fell down eight feet into the ground. A mass tomb. Uh, 46 skeletons. Actually, I didn't count them right away. I wanted to make sure enough rocks fell in. I could climb up and it wouldn't be Brother, another if I'd fell down in that tomb, I'd have walked on air to get out. Here you are counting skeletons. Yes, well, But they more were important than that, you actually took a camera and started taking pictures. Yes. Yeah. And what did you see in one of those pictures? Uh, an arch of an earlier gate. So you proved that the ancient eastern gate was located below the current eastern gate. Yes. Which was a major archaeological debate up to that and point. And that it was fully discovered. The top of the arch is in place, which means another 20 feet down or so would be yes. the roadway. So it was very... I told my archaeologist professor the next day, and he thought I fell on my head. Sure, you <laughs> found the gate. But he was willing to come back... They'd already cemented it over in uncharacteristic Middle East efficiency. What, what year was that? That was in 69. 69. Yeah. And you were a young man then. Just a kid. Just a kid. And here you become world famous no, overnight no, no. among archaeologists. That was amazing. <laughs> I think the Lord had a purpose for your life. Well, I do feel that, as we all should. Right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, now, let's talk about purpose for a moment. You've, you've touched on it, but I want you to get very specific. What is the purpose of explorations in antiquity? To help people see daily life as the ancients would have saw, thought, seen it and that they would learn to think in the way the ancient people thought that will help the Bible come alive. Okay. For example, we read a modern way of thinking into the Bible. How can we suspend some of that and look at the very practical daily life and imagery from the biblical times? So you have many sites out here in what you call your biblical garden uh, that we're going to be taking a look at. But you also have an education center here where you have an auditorium and you have uh, maps and all kinds of multimedia presentations and programs you can present, correct? Yes, we try to run 
conferences. We have some things particularly geared to clergy. Most of what we do, though, is for laypersons. Okay. We're interested in the life of the church. And also inside your main building, you have some uh, places where you can have a biblical meal yes. and see what the Last Supper really looked like. Right. And there's so many discoveries that give us a completely different idea than church art. Okay, one final question before we take a tour of your facility. Could you give me an example off the top of your head of how better understanding the culture of the first century would better help you to understand something that's said in the Bible? Only a thousand have come to mind. <laughs> but uh, did you know houses in the time of Jesus were 20 to 40 rooms, 50 to 75 people, three to four generations. Living in one house? All relatives by marriage living in one house. <laughs> and it helps you reinterpret parables. Why does the woman, when she's lost one out of ten coins, tell her friends and neighbors? They're looking too. <laughs> you all live in shared cooking rooms, courtyards, storage rooms, you see. Um, the idea of that collective identity now, part of it's rough because everybody knows everything about everybody and talks about it all the time. But part of it is you have that support system. Well, I was going to say, that's your, your social need. security system. Yes, yes. Uh, there's no need for care institutions for the elderly. Uh, and that it just gives you a new nuance. Things aren't private matters like we think the United States. We're such an individualistic country. But when... The prodigal son wishes his mom and dad were dead and asked for his inheritance in advance. Uh, everybody knows it. It's not some little one family. All the relatives, even relatives, he's embarrassed that neighborhood, that town. Uh, it is just... Uh, so in a town like Nazareth, which was tiny, maybe 200 people, everybody knew everybody and everything about everybody. And they did things together. One thing that's really... Interesting about the story when Mary and Joseph yes. left Jesus behind in Jerusalem, yes. that home alone story. Uh, the next day, or that night probably, as they were counting noses, they realized Jesus wasn't yeah. with them. Listen, they inquired amongst their relatives and friends, yeah. had anyone seen Jesus? Which means Mary and Joseph and Jesus had a support system of family and friends that came for the coming of age visit of Mary and Joseph's son to Jerusalem, which means Mary and Jesus would not have been alone either with the loss of Joseph, which is apparently And I would soon. suppose it means, too, that when Mary became pregnant, everybody the in the town it. knew it. Yeah. It probably would be good for Joseph to take Mary with him to Bethlehem. He had to go because of the yes. census. Yes, yes. Uh, that way, no one knows exactly when the baby was born. Mm -hmm or the circumstances. Okay. Well, let's take a tour of this wonderful place. Okay. All right. All right. Well, folks, we're in what looks to me like a Bedouin tent, but uh, let's let the expert tell us what it is. <laughs> this is goat hair, uh, brownish-black color. When it's dry, it's a very large space in the weave, and light can shine through. But as soon as it gets wet, it swells and becomes waterproof. And that's so it's perfect. But look over here. When you look up towards the sun in the day, it looks like the Milky Way. It does. The word in the Old Testament for the night sky is the tent of the heavens. Oh, wow. <laughs> God has just 
unfurl the tent. Now they're still used tents like this in Israel yeah. today. The Bedouins do. Sure, you can see them on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. I'm afraid there's a lot more plastic nowadays, but there's yeah. still some. Yep. What is this? Well, there's always an antiquity, and even today amongst uh, the Bedouin. Uh, divide for a women and children uh, section. Women over here. So and Sarah would have been standing on right. this side listening to right. Abraham talk. And this is where Abraham would have received others. Okay. Well, there's a little interesting item hanging on the tent over here I want us to talk oh, about. Let's okay. go see that. Okay. Okay. This is what I have in mind here, Jim. This is fascinating. Now, what in the world <laughs> is this thing? Believe it or not, a dog collar. The predators. Today is the gray wolf in the north. But in antiquity, you had lions, bears, wolves. Yes. The dogs actually wear this for a dog collar because where's the place a wolf's going to go for? The neck of the guard. Now, they didn't dog. put those on sheep, did they? No. No, no. just on the dog. On the guard dogs. On the guard dogs. Guard dogs. And oh. they, so the, the shepherd needs to have the guard dog, of course, for their hearing, but uh, they're huge watchdogs. And they even cut their ears today. Oh. So that the wolf won't have a chance to bite onto something. But I'm just, the main point is this. Most people don't realize how dangerous it is to be a shepherd in biblical times. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And when Jesus said the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, I imagine people living near grazing areas would hear every week of a shepherd. Well, David talked about killing a lion and a bear. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, let's uh, see what uh, okay, this please, temporary sheepfold is all about here. Right. When you're grazing overnight, you have to have a place to protect the sheep at night. And you get sharp sticks or yeah. thorns, and you have to make an enclosure. You have a movable gate because, of course, predators feed at night. Yeah. So the most dangerous time for the protection of the sheep is night. You're trying to find a place where there's a few little caves as right. you can, right. particularly because the desert, you know, it's cold at night in the day. But you try to have in your area of your encampment also, even if you go part of the year and come back, a permanent sheepfold, particularly for the winter. Shall we go look at Yes, uh, but this over here, this is sufficient to keep the sheep in. What happens is not to keep the sheep in. in. Oh. It's to keep the, the predators, predators out. And you have these sharp stickers. <laughs> and even though some could jump over it, they won't because they know they can't the yeah, this is out. almost like putting the glass on top of the walls, as exactly. you see in Jerusalem and today. And the soft underside of the predator, you see. All right, keeps let's, see a, let's see a permanent one, okay? Okay. okay. Let's yeah. step inside and see what this looks like here. Now, why, why, first of all, why do you have this divided here? Yep. It's because of the difference between sheep and goats. Oh. Goats are much more sure-footed and need a higher wall. You I, see, oh, this I wall see. is higher than this one. The sheep, mm-hmm. this is fine. So when you come in, you have a little slide gate here. You separate the sheep from the goats okay. because they'll need a higher, more secure sheepfold. And back here, then it we, looks like a cave. Yes, you have two mangers uh, for feeding and watering here. But listen to this. Bethlehem is 20 degrees in the winter, 120 in the summer. <laughs> if you have a cave at least 10 feet deep, okay, it'll be 69 year-round. I know, because I've been in them. Yeah, the <laughs> insulation factor. Yeah. So there's also mangers and sheepfolds inside. And the earliest tradition, 2nd century A.D., the Gospel of James, didn't make it in the canon, but it mentions that Jesus was born in a cave. Oh. If you ask people in Jesus' day, where are you most likely to find a manger? 90% of the mangers are inside caves. Okay. Because of that insulation factor. 
Well, I often, I often wondered about that because yeah. I'd always heard about the cave, but I, yeah. I didn't know where that came from. Yeah, that's where you would keep the animals, especially in the in the fall, winter time. Yeah. Coast, you're going to keep them in also there. for the health of a mother and the newborn babe. You see, if there's no place in the guest room, there would be a constant temperature in a cave, so yes. it's good for the mother and baby also. This is our rock quarry. And you can see here there's a mountainside that we're cutting away. And you can see there's pieces of wood in spaces between the cuts so you could pour water on it. So you pour water on the wood and then it expands? The osmosis makes it expand and it will release the blocks. Wow. Over here we have an example of a kind of uh, stonework called dovetail where, do you see it's like puzzle pieces? It's like pieces? a jigsaw yeah. puzzle. And um, there's actually a picture of a wall back here made with it. But uh, if you're on a loose foundation or a swamp, it's locked together. Paul talks about the church being stones rightly joined together. Okay. He's probably put, you know, adding strength to one another. Right. right? Yeah. And people often ask how they lift up stones. But you see, there's a walking wheel here. Well, let's take a look at that. Okay. Okay, Jim. Now, how in the world do they ever move these stones? <laughs> The answer is very slowly. No, no, no. Sorry. No, no. It's amazing. 500 B.C., the Greeks learned, if you make a rope go around a pulley, okay. it reduces by one quarter the weight the other side of the pulley. And so you have a round thing there. You have one pulley up there, and it comes down a second, a third pulley, and back. And so, believe it or not, this could be a 1,000 pounds in so, this location. I don't wait. No, 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 no. <laughs> you see? And they would have people walk in these wheels. And you could do it that easily? They would wind it up. Wind it up. There's a picture over here of uh, five people in a wheel lifting up a huge stone. So think of Herod's temple, 200 feet high. Yes. But they had series of tripods, quadrupods, pulleys. They weren't dumb. They certainly weren't. They knew a little bit about engineering, didn't they? Pretty, remember when they left the temple, some disciples said to Jesus, have you ever seen such beautiful stones or magnificent buildings? But Jesus had reminded them, yet, you know, all of that's going to come to an end. Not but one they were, stone on top yep, of the other. But they were impressed with the engineering of these imperial buildings. I projects. am too. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, Jim, we've climbed up on top of what looks like a watchtower here. Exactly. What is this? Exactly. Uh, this is a vineyard watchtower. Why do you need a watchtower in a vineyard? In vintage season when the grapes are out, someone's going to steal them. Oh. But it's not only that, animals can trot on them. Yes. So the vine dresser and family sleep in the watchtower. Now, the uh, season is end of summer, so you don't need a permanent roof. You only need shade. And stay overnight here. Yeah. And so we've made a vineyard here, but it's no wire, right? That's right. In antiquity. So it's a very different way to grow the grapes. Come okay, on. let's go take a look at that. Okay, well, you, you said there were no wires. Of course, they didn't have wires then, so right. uh, they just let the grapes grow in the ground? Every Yep, but every vine has a couple rocks next to it. That's right. That we do have. So <laughs> what, what's the purpose of that, to keep them off the ground? Now, here's the thing. You have to keep lifting the branches up on the rock as they get further away because if it touches the ground, it will make a root at oh. that point. And then what will happen... It will wither its connection with the deeper root of the mother vine. Ah. 
And then we get five months of no rain. May, June, July, August, September. In Judea, grapes come out August, September, and it will wither. Now let's go back to Jesus saying at the Last Supper, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. Everybody knows if you don't keep a vine off the ground, it will make its own nourishement and Except Stop. 20th century people don't know that. Oh, well, we've got to work on that. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? Jesus' last saying for his disciple was, keep your nourishment in life based upon my deeper root. Your deeper root, yes. That will hold you through the droughts. And did you know the same word take away in Greek is lift up? In fact, three out of four times is translated lift up. Instead of understanding any branch that bear not fruit, I will take away. Mm-hmm. Three out of four times that word is I will lift up. And if you're all the time stacking <laughs> branches up onto rocks, it's a very different feeling, isn't it? Yes. Between take away and lift up. I'll help you keep your nourishment based on my deeper root. Once again, understanding the culture, farming methods, and whatever helps us to better understand the Bible. I think if more translators would see an ancient vineyard yes. without branches already up on wire, they may have thought okay. of putting lift up instead of Well, what's taking. our next stop in this tour? Let's go down for the natural consequence and look at the great See press. what they did with the grape. Yeah. Okay, let's go. Here we are at the place you bring your grapes from the vineyard. Oh, so the person holds on to the ropes? That's so you stomp with two points instead of three points. Okay. <laughs> and, and you hold on the ropes and you've got bare feet, hopefully clean. Hopefully. And you got grapes you in there. You stomp there and you take off your sandals. Otherwise, it will be a little bit sour with the yeah, pits being yeah, scraped yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then you see the grape juice dribbles down here. And actually, this should not be inside. We didn't want it to fall over. But that's your collection vat. Uh, what's really interesting in the images in the Bible, the stomping vat is an image of judgment. Grapes of wrath. Yes. Uh, You hear a cadence on two occasions when you're stomping on the grapes and an enemy army marching Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. So remember Jesus' phrase, trodden under the foot of the Gentile and and bowls of judgment, crushed grapes and stuff. But the collection vat is a symbol of joy because the grapes come out the end of summer Just when your water cisterns are drying up, the Lord gives you the fruit of the vine. Mm -hmm. So for Jews, that overflowing cup of vine, my cup overflows, is joy. And then you take that juice and you put it here and this strains it? You have to use a linen cloth. Remember Jesus saying some religious people strain a gnat and swallow a camel? Yes. Flies, gnats, ants, end of summer. Mm -hmm. So you strain it. There are some Pharisees in the time of Jesus who don't trust you if you come over for dinner. And before you pour the fruit of the vine in the cup, they'll bring out a little cloth and put it over the mm-hmm. cup. A gnat is unclean, and a camel is unclean. I've swallowed a lot of gnats in my life. And <laughs> we've all met a lot of people who are worried about a gnat, but they swallow camels every day too, right? Uh, peace right. and justice issues. Now, do you have a place here that shows how they processed olives? This yes. is grapes, yes. olives. So stomping for grapes. Okay. Olives are pressed. Pressed. Let's go. Let's look. see a press. Okay. Uh, 
So here's where you press the olives. Understand that you would have baskets or sometimes sacks held up by these stones back here. You got a large stone here. That is so that you can really have a flat surface. So the olives are put under here, a stone on top, and then you put this thing on and weights. And notice there's places to put more than one weight. We just have the second weight on now. Usually a weight is as big as you can for two people to lift it up. Okay. And you can imagine, as you put the weight on, the olive juice runs down the sides and then into this collection vat for the olive oil. Now what's interesting is, this is called, believe it or not, a Gethsemane. A Gethsemane? Geth is press. Semen is oil. So Jesus likes to pray in a garden called the Garden of the Oil Press. If you ask anyone, what do you picture when you picture an oil press, they'll say, liquid running down the sides and something getting flatter and flatter under pressure. So I think the image is there. Jesus feels pressed Uh in the Garden of the Oil Press. But notice, you would add four different ways, and that's for four grades of olive oil. You put the first weight on. That's called the first pressing virgin oil. And it is for religious purposes. It's for anointing the sick. It's for the menorah in your synagogue with a special seven-day ceremony, the lampstand in the temple. You cup all that up, and then you put the second weight on. That's the largest press. It's for cooking and eating. Okay. Then you add, to, to, taking that away, you add the third weight. That's a little bit bitter. So it's for your oil lamps. Oh. And you see you have a place for the wick here and the, pour the yeah. oil in there. Okay. And the fourth pressing is so full of lye, L-Y-E, is used for soap. We <laughs> joke, amazing. I didn't palm know, olive soap, right? Yeah. Palm and olive palm oils olive are used. But isn't that amazing? Uh, Book of Hosea says, uh, like as an olive tree to a beautiful tree. In terms of function, you've pickled fruit, the wood, of course, the door of the temple is made of olive wood. And then you've got healing with anointing. You've got cooking, uh, salad oil, eating. Then you have electricity, <laughs> your light, and even your soap. Truly makes it a beautiful tree. It's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you are enjoying this tour of Jim Fleming's fabulous Antiquity Center in LaGrange, Georgia. As you have seen, it is a place where you can learn firsthand how people lived in the time of Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about this fascinating place, you can locate their website at diggingforit.net. It would be a great place for you to take a church group. They have special study programs for both adults and children. Next week, the Lord willing, we are going to continue our tour of the Antiquity Center and take a look at other aspects of life in Bible times. I hope you'll be back with us for that program. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Are you interested in gaining new insights about the Bible through archaeology? Four of our Christ in Prophecy episodes with Dr. James Fleming, filmed at our studios in Dallas, can be enjoyed on one DVD entitled Biblical Archaeology. 
In these four fascinating programs, Dr. Fleming discusses the importance of biblical archaeology, the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the relationship of the Eastern Gate to the location of the ancient Jewish temple. In the final interview, he discusses a wide range of archaeological issues, such as the sites of Mount Sinai, the Mount of Transfiguration, and the Tomb of Jesus. The running time of the video is approximately 80 minutes. In addition to individual study, this series of 20-minute programs would make a great discussion and teaching tool for Bible study groups. This album is available for a gift of $12 or more, plus the cost of shipping. To order a copy, call the number you see on the screen Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time, or order online at lamblion.com. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus.